This is most certainly true. In the greatest act of selfless mercy, God sent His own Son into our world to die for your sins. And we can't stop talking about it. We now present this sermon, recently delivered at Grace, to you. The Gospel from Mark chapter 10, and these words of Jesus will serve as the basis for today's sermon. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean to be great? A simple definition is to do or to be or to have some kind of an ability that is better than average. For example, I've eaten a lot of good pizza in my life, but the other day I had some really great pizza. But here's the deal, I'm not going to tell you where I got that pizza from, because you might not agree with me that it is really all that great. And therein lies the problem that we run into when we try to determine what is great. Ask an avid sports fan who is the GOAT. You know what goat means, right? Greatest of all time, goat. Who is the greatest, who is the goat of their favorite sport, and you open up an endless debate. Ask a a historic or a history buff or a political junkie who the best American president that ever was, and again, you're going to find a whole lot of different answers. It's really hard to pin down what it means to be great. Some might even argue that this whole idea of chasing after greatness is 
kind of anti-Christian and maybe even a sinful pursuit because we ought to just be satisfied with God, where God has put us and how he's made us. But God has created you to be unique and special people with different gifts and abilities and it's not wrong to want to strive to be great. But I think we need to look at the underlying reasoning as to what is driving me or my approach or what is my goal in achieving greatness. So do you know what it takes to be great? The world defines greatness as accomplishments. Your power, your prestige, your successes. But today in the reading, Jesus does something very Jesus-esque. He flips the script on what the world says is greatness and instead offers up a much better and, dare I say, greater definition of what it means to be truly great. Jesus and his disciples were on their way for one of the last times together to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was just a short time away from the events of Holy Week, events that would lead to his betrayal, his arrest, trials, and ultimately crucifixion. The disciples were astonished, we heard at the beginning of the reading, and the rest of the followers with Jesus were afraid. You see, Jesus up to this point had already twice told the people that he was going to die at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And so the disciples in the crowd had to have been thinking, why, Jesus, are you going to Jerusalem when you know it's going to end in your death? And so they were astonished, they're amazed, and a little bit afraid of what's going to happen. But now here again, Jesus, for a third time, tells them what is going to take place. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to suffer and die. But he also knew the end goal. He knew that on the third day he would rise, victorious as the rescuer and savior of all sinners. But the disciples didn't quite get it yet. And so each of these times when Jesus predicted his death and shared that with them, each time they responded with pride and misunderstanding. The first time, Peter proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, the promised Savior, and then in the very next moment said, No way, Jesus, you will never suffer and die. I'm not going to let it happen. The second time Jesus predicted his death, as the disciples and Jesus kept walking on their journey, the disciples started to argue Who was the greatest among them? And now this third time. James and John, part of this inner group of Jesus' disciples along with Peter, who had this really special um, opportunity to be with Jesus on, on particular moments in his ministry, like his transfiguration and in the Garden of Gethsemane. James and John came to Jesus with a question. What did they want? They wanted to have the 
the position of power and prestige and honor. Jesus, give us the two seats, the best seats of your glory, one on your right and one on your left. They wanted to be great. I think that they had in their mind that they expected Jesus as the Messiah to come and set up this earthly kingdom. And when that came, they had their ambitious sight set on those those seats of power and authority. They wanted to be right there next to Jesus. Come on, Peter, James, and John. Seriously? How could you be so arrogant and ignorant? And you understand that even though they've been sitting at the feet of Jesus for about three years at this point, learning and, and understanding who he was and what that meant, they had grown up in a society and in a religion where the leaders had told them that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to set up an earthly kingdom. And so it's no wonder why they had this kind of thinking. Now, it doesn't excuse the error that they're making, but it does help us at least understand where they're coming from. But also, before you come down too hard on those two, would you take a moment to give a careful look at your own life? Because in much the same way as the world was influencing James and John in their view of Jesus, the world around us influences our view of Jesus and what that means for our lives with him too. And Jesus still actually offers up the same question he offered to them. What do you want me to do for you? So what do you want from Jesus? Perhaps you are putting together a list in your head that is a little bit more sanctified because, well, you're in church and you're listening to a sermon this morning, right? And that's a good thing. But honestly, how many times do you not approach the Lord with a much more prideful, arrogant attitude, asking God for for things to satisfy our own desires? Like you just want the Lord to, to help you be right and to be proved right once in a while. You want to be noticed or recognized by others. You want the Lord to make you successful, to to put you way up high above everyone else, to be rich and famous, whatever it might be, because those are the things that the world says you need to have power and prestige and honor and success to be put up on this pedestal, high above everybody else, no matter how or what it takes you to get up there, and no matter what relationships you have to crush to get there, even with your Lord. And this comes flying at you, tugging at the sinful, prideful nature that we have within each of us. And it causes us to really misunderstand what it means to be great. In fact, it makes us think that we are much greater before God than we really are. And often makes us even think that, pridefully, I don't even need Jesus. You know and understand how pride destroys relationships and separates you from a real, honest relationship with God. Notice something about this conversation that Jesus is having. He doesn't reprimand James and John for their request. Now, he's going to correct them about how they can achieve greatness, but he doesn't doesn't reprimand them and tell them they're wrong for wanting to be great. But he starts off by telling them that, the, that they are going to have to drink from the cup that he is going to drink and be baptized with the same baptism he's going to be baptized with. In other words, Jesus is going to suffer. And as his followers, they are going to suffer too as they proclaim Christ. And this is just the beginning as Jesus is starting to explain what it means 
to be great. But Jesus didn't get to it all because the other ten disciples got all up in arms about James and John's request. And it wasn't a question of how dare you ask Jesus such a thing. But I think it was much more of a prideful, how dare you be first to ask Jesus of such a special privilege. I wanted to be first and have those cool seats in Jesus' glory with him. You see, they all wanted to be the greatest. Jesus pulls them off to the side and begins to tell them what it really means to be great. And he starts by explaining how the world views greatness. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, worldly greatness and leadership is all about power and being in charge and having others answer to you. And that kind of greatness is often, is often reached by, by using leverage and fear and intimidation. But then Jesus flips it around. And he says, not so for you. That's not the way it is for you because if you really want to be great... Greatness is all about being a servant to someone else. If you really want to be first, then be a slave to others. Greatness is not about being number one or the best. Greatness is not about having the biggest bank account or the best grades or being the most successful person around. No, being great means serving others. And putting their needs first. Would you think for a moment what that could look like in your life if you were to chase after that kind of greatness? Where would you see blessings in your life if you were great in God's eyes and not great in the world's eyes? Would you maybe be a little bit more content in life? Would there be less stress because instead of achieving greatness in the world, you're, you're serving others? Would your relationships be stronger because people would see that you actually have their needs in, in, in your arms and in your eyes and, and you're putting them first rather than your own desires? And what if you were a humble servant like the Apostle Paul as he described in 1 Corinthians as one who became all things to all people so in every possible way he might save some? Would more people see Jesus in your life if you weren't chasing after greatness in this world? Well, maybe you recognize, yeah, that is, that is the great way to be living life. That is the way I ought to live life. But maybe you're struggling, too, in your heart and in your mind about how can I even achieve that, though? Well, it starts by turning to the one who is really great at being truly great. And that one, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as the Bible proclaims and as the Holy Spirit opens up your heart to believe, is the Almighty God who humbled himself by coming down and taking on human flesh and life when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
But God did not take on flesh and live in this world so that he could have the best carpentry service in the Nazareth area or to rise up through the ranks to become a chief priest among the Pharisees or to challenge the Roman emperor to his rule. Jesus did not come to be served and to be waited on hand and foot. Rather, Jesus came to wash feet and to serve this world and to serve you. Jesus came to live life for you and to offer up his holy, perfect life in your place as a payment to set you free from all of your sins and death. Jesus came to wash you clean of all of your sin, all of your disobedience, all the hurtful things you have done, all the mistakes you've made in this life, to wash you clean so that in faith you can stand before the Almighty God covered in the perfection and righteousness of Jesus. Jesus suffered the agony of hell to set you free so that you can be free to live in the joy of God's grace today and always. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Isn't that great? And that's the reason why Jesus was willing to go to Jerusalem even though he knew it was going to end in his death. Because he knew that his death was not going to be in vain, but that it would serve your eternal needs. And his resurrection proved that God accepted his service and saw Jesus' service in life and in death as great. And Jesus' resurrection proves that you are forgiven and are given new life. And that's the reason why you can be great as you serve others with the love of God. You see, in Jesus, you are made great as a redeemed child of God, bought back from sin and death and given new life. And that eternal life is secure. There is no amount of effort or accomplishments or success in this life that can change that fact that is made ours in Christ. So that means that you have been set free today to achieve greatness in a new way. In the way that God defines greatness by serving one another with the love of God. And that, my friends, is what it means to be great. Thanks for listening. To learn more about God's grace or to support this ministry, please visit gracedowntown.org today. This grace is for you. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace.